0: Home stretch of our series in the book of Matthew. We've been going through the book of Matthew slowly. I never go through books this slowly. This is the first time in my entire uh, life as a pastor of going through a book in this much slow detail. We are in week 30, which is at least twice as long as any other message series that I've ever given. And this reason. For going through it slowly is because so much of the book of Matthew is so countercultural to who we are in the world today that I figured we needed to dig in and spend some more time with it. Our series began with a verse in Matthew 27, a verse that we read last week, but I didn't overemphasize it. The first week of this whole series, we started with this verse as kind of our theme verse for the whole reason why we were doing the series. I'll put it up on the screen. It's Matthew 27, 42. People standing around the cross mock Jesus by saying, He saved others, but He can't save Himself. He's the king of Israel, let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. We started with this verse because the question I had from the very beginning of the series was, can you follow a king like this? Can you follow a king who will not save himself? Now there are a lot of reasons why the people who said these words were speaking the truth. I mean, you know the case is always this, that kings only serve while they're alive. That's the way kings work. You can't be a king if you're dead. Once you're dead, you're no longer king. You've heard the phrase, the king is dead, long live the king. When I was a little kid, I was like, well, wait a minute, you just told me he was dead. How could he still be living? And that's because they wanted to reaffirm that king has moved. The one person is dead, but the word king has moved to a new person who's now alive. And that's why they say the king is dead, long live the king, because the one guy's dead, the title has transferred. You can't be a king when you're dead. And the people standing in front of the cross, they knew that. They're looking up at Jesus and they're like, he claims he's a king and yet he's dying. That's not the way kingship works. And they were right. It's not the way kingship on earth works. But the other thing that I find fascinating is that they say, if he'll come down, then we'll believe in him. Believe is an interesting word. I heard just uh, last week something that I hadn't known before, but it's that Greek, the Greek language doesn't actually have a word that adequately expresses what we mean by the word trust. When we say trust, we are talking frequently about trusting a human being, trusting a person to be who they claim they are, to act in a trustworthy manner, to act in the ways that they say they will act. Trust is a thing that we place in people. And apparently the Greek language didn't have that, and so the New Testament writers had to invent a new term, and the term they invented was belief in. No one before the New Testament had ever used the preposition in to refer to belief. Belief is something that you believe about things. You believe things. You believe that something is true. But to believe in someone was a New Testament basic invention because they needed to say that Jesus was a person that you were trusting, that you were putting your faith in him. But that's the weird question. If he's hanging on the cross, how do you trust him? Jesus said things like, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus said things that made him seem like he was the be-all, end-all of human history. Jesus said things that made him look like he was God in the flesh. And people standing around him were like, we can't believe that if you're dead. If you're dying, we can't believe that. We can't believe the things you said, nor can we believe the person who said them. So we can't believe in you unless you come down. But there's a third reason why what they said has been so powerful for our study. It's because, see, we live by a certain set of principles, a certain set of rules. And the rules that we live by, we just assume are true, whether we actually have done any of the study or not. One of those rules is that if I can't save myself. I need someone stronger than me to save me. That makes sense, right? If I can't save myself, I need someone stronger than me to save me, stronger than I, who can do the work of saving. Now, that makes sense. But the part that we don't judge ourselves on enough is that if someone is strong enough to save me, that person will save themselves first. If a person is strong enough to save me, that person is strong enough to defend themselves. And why would I ever want someone who isn't strong enough to defend him or herself? We've bought into the lesson of the airplane. You know the lesson of the airplane? How many of you have taken an airplane trip somewhere before? Maybe not during COVID, but sometime. yeah, you've done that. And they always give you the seat buckle demonstration like you don't know how to run a seatbelt, you know? And then you realize it's a different kind of seatbelt. And it's like, okay, why don't I have the same seatbelt in my car that I have in the air? I still don't understand that. But they have to teach you how to use a seatbelt. They show you how to use the air thing under your seat. You know, the, the life vest if you end up crashing into water. Which I've always wondered, if we end up crashing into water, am I going to need a life vest? But anyway, just another question. But I really want to pull it out sometime, put it over my shoulder and blow into. You know, I've wanted to do that. But the big thing, of course is if the pressure drops in the plane, an oxygen mask will fall down from the magic sky above you and you are supposed to put it on yourself first before helping the people around you, whether those people around you are little kids or not. We've all bought into the principle of the airplane, which says you've got a limited amount of time. You have to save yourself first or else you will be unable to save anyone else. You have to care for yourself first or else you will be unable to care for anyone else. And this pragmatic idea of the airplane mixes with our already notion of the playground that says, if I can't save myself, I need someone stronger than me to save me. And that person needs to be strong enough to bully anyone else in the room, whether they're actually bullying them or not. And so we live by this code, save yourself first. I need a bully on my side. And neither one of them match what Jesus is doing hanging on the cross. And the problem is that the people back then, standing at the cross, and you and me today, do not understand what I'm calling the secret of sacrifice. It's a secret that Jesus knew, but it's a secret that's almost impossible to believe. Jesus put it this way in Matthew 16. He says, forever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. Nothing about this sentence makes sense. The first line, of course, that kind of makes sense. If I'm trying to save my life, I will eventually lose it anyway. Okay, so that kind of makes sense. But the second line doesn't make any human sense at all, where he says, whoever loses their life for me will find it. We all live within a sliver of time between birth and death. And between birth, there are a bunch of decisions, choices, and experiences that we have. And then there's death. And we know the sliver works this way. And if I lose my life, then this part has just reached now. If I lose my life, then mine now is done. There's no more me. Jesus said, whoever loses his life for me will find it. There's no one left to do the finding. If my life is lost, then me is lost. But then Jesus says, whoever loses his life for me will find it. There's no more life to be found if I have lost mine. It's not like I could borrow someone else's, is it? It's not like someone else would be willing to give me their life, is it? I mean, there's no way for that to possibly work in our normal way of thinking. Life is a sliver of time. Between the beginning and the end is all of what we've got, and we don't want to lose it. But Jesus says there's a secret to sacrifice. Somehow, somehow, if this is done by sacrifice, then there's more over here. And in Matthew 16, he doesn't explain it. In Matthew 16, he doesn't give us any sort of like proof or illustration. He just says, if you lose your life for me, you will find it. Somehow, if this part here is sacrifice, over here there is something more. And of course, that's hard to believe. But that's why we have Matthew 27 and 28. In Matthew 27, Matthew is going to tell us a story of something that is absolutely unbelievable. There is no earthly reason why we should believe the story Matthew is telling us. And so Matthew does his best to give us seven clear pieces of evidence, seven clear facts that lead us to believe that this unimaginable event actually happened. But what Matthew is going to claim to us today is that when Jesus died on the cross, that was a sacrifice. And in Jesus' kingdom, sacrifice is not the end. In Jesus' kingdom, sacrifice has something else on the other side. And so Matthew begins to tell us the story of what happens when Jesus died And shortly thereafter, Matthew chapter 27, we're going to actually pick it up in verse 54. This is the last verse we looked at last week, and I'm starting with it this week. It says this, Matthew 27, 54, when the centurion and those who were with him were guarding Jesus, saw the earthquake, and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. Many women were there, watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. I find it interesting. There's a, there are a lot of little details in there that I would love to kind of comment on, particularly uh, who is Mary Magdalene. We haven't talked about her in the book of Matthew very much. Uh, we haven't talked about the other Marys. We haven't talked about uh, the, who the Mary who might be the mother of James and Joseph would be, although that's probably Jesus' own mother. The mother of James and Joseph was probably the mother of James and Joseph and Jesus and Jude Mary, you know, the one who was a virgin Mary at the Christmas story. That's probably her. But then there's this other woman who is the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Do you remember the sons of Zebedee? That's James and John who uh, got their mom to ask Jesus, hey, would you make my sons your number one and two in your kingdom? And Jesus is like, are you sure about that? Anyway, so that's her, probably. And there's some other interesting things that we could dig into there. But that's not the fact I want to highlight for you. The fact that Matthew is giving to us here that forms the number one foundation of what we should understand from this passage is that there were Roman soldiers and Jewish women who were eyewitnesses of Jesus' death. This is really important for two reasons. Of course, I could make fun of the disciples who weren't even there at this point in time. They'd all run away, except we know that John was still at the foot of the cross with Jesus' mom. But most of the other ones had run away. Matthew wasn't even there. He's getting this story from, I'm imagining, those women. But anyway, what's fascinating about this story is that a Jewish man Matthew would never have put a Roman soldier in a place of spiritual authority to know anything important unless it actually happened that way. A Jewish man, Matthew, would never have put women in the place of an eyewitness unless it had actually happened that way. Let me see if I can explain this better. So, you see, the Jewish people didn't trust the Romans at all. They were Gentiles. You couldn't trust them for anything. They were just going to say whatever they wanted to say to make sure that their way happened, you know. Uh, A Jewish person wasn't going to trust the Romans at all. They were Gentiles. They were non-Jews. You just don't trust them. But beyond that, no one in their society, literally no one in their society, trusted the testimony of a woman. It was considered back then to be a non-witness if you only had a woman who saw what happened. It was standard practice back then that if you went to court and you needed someone to testify on your behalf and you brought a woman, they wouldn't even listen to her. You had to have witnesses that weren't women. That was just their culture. Matthew isn't making a judgment statement about that at all. What he's telling us is that the eyewitnesses of Jesus' death were women. The reason that's so significant is that if Matthew is making up a story and he wants you to know that Jesus died, if he's making up the story, then he would make the most trustworthy men know the facts. But in this story, repeatedly, it's the women who know the facts. And as I said already... The only reason a Jewish man would put a woman or a Roman soldier in a place of factual authority is if it actually happened that way. No one would have fabricated a story with women as the witnesses. Hopefully that's clear. I'm not making a judgment statement about that. I'm just, I, I mean, I will say that today I think women are probably better witnesses than most men because I think a lot of women pay more attention to things than at least I do, you know, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, the point is that they were there and Matthew is telling us the actual truth, okay? Let's keep going. Let's see what shows up next. Verse 57. As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. Uh, So here's another fact. This one is that the women saw Jesus' dead body placed in a secure stone tomb. Now, once again, I affirm that the reason this is important is not just that we know Jesus' body was in a tomb, but it's that we know that Matthew told us women saw it. And so, again, once again, since the women were the only ones who were part of Jesus' entourage who actually witnessed this, we know that Matthew is telling us exactly what happened because he wouldn't have written it down, he wouldn't have fabricated it this way. But there's another thing I want you to notice it's Joseph, a man from Arimathea that we have never heard of before. This is not Joseph, Jesus' dad. You know, uh, this is Joseph from Arimathea, a place that we've never heard of. He's some rich guy. He's some. He's got it in with the with the governor of Rome somehow that he can convince Pilate to let him take a crucified man off of a cross. They never did that. They always left the bodies on the cross so that they would just rot there, and everybody would be repulsed by it for weeks. But somehow, Pilate gives him permission to do this. I don't know any of the. Maybe he paid Pilate off. I don't know. But who is this guy? Why does he show up once again? The only reason Matthew would introduce a random newcomer to the scene is if it actually happened that way. If you're making up the story, you don't throw confusing bits in. At one point in time, you know, I was thinking that um, I could come up with all the ways for this whole story to be faked. You know, in order for this whole story to be faked, uh, Jesus has to either not die or Jesus has to be somehow replaced by someone else, twin brother or something like that. He has to be replaced by someone else uh, to as you'll see later on in the story. Either he has to not die or he has to be replaced. Or maybe he has to, you know, get close to death and somehow gets nurtured back to life. And Joseph of Arimathea, maybe he's got enough money. Maybe he can help nurture Jesus. You know, he didn't all the way die, and so he's nurturing Jesus kind of back to health. And, and so maybe Joseph is involved in all that stuff. No. The reason why none of those things make any sense is that the only reason Joseph is in the story is that Matthew knew it happened that way. The only reason we have the story is that the women actually saw Jesus' dead body go into the tomb. But it's more than that. Check this out. Matthew gives us a, another couple of facts that are super awesome. Look at verse 62. It says, The next day, the one after preparation day, let's be clear, Jesus dies on a Friday which is preparation day. The Sabbath is Saturday. You prepare for the Sabbath on preparation day. You have the Sabbath on the Sabbath day. And so the day after preparation day is the Sabbath day. Okay, so Jesus dies on Friday. It's now Saturday. The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I will rise again. How is it that the Pharisees paid attention to Jesus' prophecies about rising again, but the disciples didn't? Because there are no disciples on Sunday morning standing in front of the tomb going, is it going to happen? None of them were there. Okay, anyway. So they heard Jesus, and they don't think that it's actually going to happen, but they want to prevent the disciples from doing something. Verse 64. So give order, give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day, otherwise his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. A quick question for you. Let's say you were one of those guys. And you were going to go to the tomb to make sure it was secure. And you had a whole regiment of guards with you. And you get to the tomb and your biggest fear is that the body will be stolen before the third day. And so you get to the tomb, and you post a guard, and you post a seal. My question to you is, will you take a peek inside first? I know I sure would. You know, if my whole point is to make sure the body is still in the tomb after three days, and I've got a whole crew of of soldiers with me, You better believe we're rolling that stone back so I can look inside there and say, yep, still there. And then we close the stone the rest of the way. And then we seal the stone. And then we place the guards. Here is proof that on Saturday, the body's still in the grave. The women saw it on Friday go into the tomb. On Saturday, it's still there. The body of Jesus is still there. But let's go on. Verse 1 of chapter 28. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, it is now the third day, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. They're not counting in 24-hour increments. That's okay. They're just counting the third day, which would be Sunday. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look At the tomb. This was a thing that Jewish people did. It was standard practice for Jewish people to go to a tomb every day for four days. Because it was understood that a body could possibly, you know, spontaneously maybe not be all the way dead. They could have just been in a coma or something. And so the fourth day would confirm that the body was permanently dead in sort of their their kind of culture. And so they were going to go and just visit the tomb. It was standard practice. It It was normal. However, they are bringing spices with them. Did you see that? They're going to look at the tomb, and uh, it doesn't say it here in this passage, but if you cross-reference it with the other passages in the other Gospels, they are bringing a whole bunch of spices with them because their intent is to actually re-embalm the body on that particular day. Because after all, Joseph had done it on Friday, and we all know that, you know, if if a guy does something, then probably women need to do it better again. Anyway, so... um, that's, that's what they're going there to do. They're going to look at the tomb. They're going to make sure the body's still there. They're going to do the things that they need to do to care for the body. Verse two. There was a violent earthquake for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. When I was a kid, Uh, There was this, I think I've told you about flannel graphs before. It's like a board covered with felt and then little paper dolls with little sticky stuff on the backside. You'd stick them on the felt and move them around. And there was always this scene where the angel comes down from heaven and the guards are in front of the tomb. And it just always made the guards like fall down on their faces like they were knocked out cold or something. And I I just want to be clear. That might have happened, but Matthew doesn't say it. It says they shook and became as dead men. I think it's possible that he could be speaking like this. The guys were just stone-faced, couldn't do anything. They're just like, what is happening here? It's possible they got knocked over. It's possible they're just staring at the angel the whole time this is going on. And I find that to be absolutely fascinating. Keep going. It says, oh, they, they became like dead men. So... The one point that I want to make about this is not whether they were lying down or standing up. What I want you to notice is that the stone was rolled away while they were still there. The angel came, moved the stone, while the guards were there. And if Matthew's ordering of those events is right, the guards don't really become like dead men until after he sits on the stone that he just moved away. But let's keep going. Verse 5, it says, The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. Fact number five. Both the guards and the women saw an angel and an empty tomb. The the angel rolled the stone away and specifically said, look, look inside. Both the guards and the women saw the ancient tomb empty. Now, once again, the only reason Matthew would tell us that a guard had seen this is if it had actually happened. The only reason Matthew would tell us that women were witnesses of this is if it had actually happened. So far in this story, the women are the only people who would be Jewish and are actually seeing this stuff. If Matthew's making up this story, none of them would have been written like this. If Matthew was making up these facts, they would all have been some significant man. But no. He tells us women saw it because that's what actually happened. Verse 8. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly, Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Write this down. Fact number six. The women saw, touched, and spoke with Jesus. Now, you are not going to convince a woman who loves someone son, father, husband, brother, friend, you are not going to convince a woman who loves someone that that person is dead and has come back to life if that person is not 100% the same person. Like, it's not like you can bring in an identical twin. And this person will be just so distraught. Oh my goodness, the identical twin has shown up. And so I'll pretend it's Jesus. You're not going to convince that person that way. The only way this could have happened, I mean, the only way Matthew would have written this down is if it actually happened this way. That women were the ones who first saw and touched and spoke with Jesus. But keep going, there's a little bit more. Verse 11, while the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed, and this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. I find it fascinating that the Pharisees are creating a potential fabrication story. We're worried the disciples might steal the body. So let's get some soldiers. And then later on, they pay the soldiers to say, oh, that's what happened. The disciples. Oh, yeah, those 11 guys, one of them's gone. Judas, he left them. The the other 11 guys, right, they're fishermen. And one of them's like a a tax collector. And uh, um, they just snuck in while we were all sleeping and stole the body. It's like they prepared a fabricated story and then later that fabricated story paid off. But that's not the point. The interesting point, fact number seven, is that the guards actually incriminated themselves by retelling this story. The guards are taking the risk of their own life by telling a story admitting that the tomb was empty. Here's the fascinating thing. There is no historical way to deny that the tomb was empty. There is no historical way to deny that Jesus died all the way. There is no historical way to deny that Jesus died, was buried, verified in the tomb the next day, and then the next morning with a garrison out in front and the tomb having been sealed by the governor himself, somehow the tomb gets opened and the body gets out. There is no historical way to deny that sequence of events. What is left over is to ask the question how did the body leave and the soldiers know that the body left without their knowledge the soldiers know that the body left while they were standing there but they tell the story that the disciples come and steal The body. No soldier would ever have fallen asleep on the job unless another soldier was keeping watch. That's the way it worked. You have a group of soldiers one, two, three, four, some of them keep watch while the other Ones take a little bit of a nap. That's the way it works. If you don't follow that principle, you lose your job or lose your life. That's just how the soldiering thing works. So for them to say, we were asleep, puts them in jeopardy of their own lives, and yet they told the story that way. So, the only thing we're left with is the word of some women who say they saw and touched and spoke with Jesus. And I mean, come on, can you trust the word of a bunch of women who say that? That's the point. The only reason Matthew would have written it down is if if it actually happened that way. It's not just that. We find out from the rest of the New Testament that this story of Jesus actually coming out alive from the grave is the absolute single most important story in the entirety of all human history and especially in Christian doctrine. There are some people who will be like, listen man, I just don't believe all that Bible stuff and I give you permission to say, fine, you don't have to believe the Bible stuff. What I want you to think about is the fact that a guy claimed to be God and then predicted his own death and resurrection and then pulled it off and we've got some really amazing historical documents that tell that story and then that person's like wait, what? historical documents? And you're like, yeah, I've got a document with a verified author who gives me a reliable story with reliable facts that could not have been fabricated from any reasonable understanding of the way things operate in this world. And that guy gives all these facts to testify that this guy, Jesus, actually came back to life. Oh, and there are more people who say the same thing. In fact, over 500 people who were alive at the time of the Apostle Paul claims to have visibly seen Jesus and be face to face with him. Paul gives us a list. Let me show it to you. It's in 1 Corinthians 15. It says this. Paul says, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to, and here's his list, Cephas or Cephas is the name of Peter, and then here's a whole bunch of others, and then to the rest of the 12. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom who are still living though some have fallen asleep then he appeared to James then to all the apostles and then he says last of all to me but then we skip ahead a few verses and he says if it is preached that Christ has not has been raised from the dead how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead if there is no resurrection of the dead then not even Christ has been raised and if Christ has not been raised our preaching is useless and so is your faith. Everything in the Christian faith, everything in the Christian faith depends not on a text that we read, everything in the Christian faith does not depend on a church we attend. Everything in the Christian faith does not depend on a tradition of church leaders. Everything in the Christian faith does not depend on a corpus of songs. Everything in the Christian faith does not depend on the time or date that we meet. Everything in the Christian life depends on one thing. And one thing only a historical event that either happened or didn't. jesus rose from the dead. If it happened, that changes literally everything. If it didn't happen, forget it. Move on. Paul himself in the same passage would say, if Jesus hasn't been raised, then Christians are to be more pitied than any other people on the planet. If Jesus was raised, it changes everything. If he was not, move on. Nothing else matters. But that brings us back to this idea that we've been kind of wrestling with throughout this whole series. The whole book of Matthew is portraying Jesus as a king for the weak, a king for the losers, A king who leverages his own power to help other people. A king who doesn't protect himself but serves others. Everything in the book of Matthew is trying to present Jesus as this amazing, universal, wonderful, amazing, powerful king who never uses his power for himself. And at the end of the story, we get enough of the final picture to understand why. It's because for Jesus... The resurrection proves that sacrifice is not the end. Listen, we all live our lives in this little slice. We are born, we make decisions and have experiences, and then we die. And even people who believe in life after death are still focused on this little sliver of time. Uh, this little window of our opportunity. And some of us are trying to make this time move just a little bit more down the line. A- and some of us are trying to make the experiences in the middle so much more rich that we're okay with the end line, you know, moving a little bit in this direction. But it's here where all the selfishness lives. Because see, in this little sliver here, I am the ultimate determiner of the decisions and the consequences of those decisions that I face. The only influence of what happens down here and how I get to down here is kind of the world around me in general and me in particular. I'm the one who gets to determine my window. I'm the one who determines my slice and what the experiences inside it are all about. And so I am very, very tempted to be selfish. But it's in this slice, in this little window, where selflessness happens too. Because since I could make selfish decisions... I could also make selfless decisions. And it's in this place where the decisions that I need to make might lead to me losing my life or losing an aspect of the life that feels like life. But Jesus says, if you lose your life for me, you will find it. And the resurrection proves that sacrifice is not the end. Jesus is hanging on the cross and people say, if you can't save yourself, how could you save us? And yet the truth is, He saves us specifically because He doesn't save Himself. His death on the cross provides us both forgiveness for sin and through the resurrection, a promise of an eternal life that we could never have known. We could never have relied upon without it. His resurrection tells us that this little sliver of life can be lost without any loss. Because this little sliver of life, if it is lost for the right reasons, will gain something so much more. The resurrection proves that sacrifice is not the end. Listen, I'm just like you. We're we're all in the same boat together. We go through our daily lives and we say to ourselves, I don't know if I could make another sacrifice. I don't know if I could sacrifice my desires, my wishes for that other thing. I I spend all my energy on the little things inside my sliver and I just don't know if I could give up the life that I want to have. But Jesus says, you could. You could focus on your sliver. Or you could lose and find something so much more. The resurrection proves that sacrifice is not the end and therefore Christians throughout the centuries have been people who embraced the king of sacrifice because he is the king of life after the sacrifice. I encourage you to receive Jesus Put him first in your life and walk with him. It's not going to be easy all the time. Jesus never said it would be easy. It's not going to be pleasant all the time. Jesus never said it would be pleasant. In fact, the whole notion of Jesus following Jesus being lined up with sacrifice doesn't sound very attractive to me at all. But I tell you what, the resurrection proves that sacrifice is not and never will be the end for those who are following him. Let me pray for you. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you. And His plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.